ready for this, part three? Well, I know you've heard nothing about the purpose of the church lately if you're here on the weekends, but uh, let's see if we can revisit some of this perhaps with uh, a little different angle, looking at it from a little different perspective, and then maybe going a few levels deeper than what we have on the weekend. But it is purposeful that we have done what we started here on the weekend with this series on the purpose of the church, and uh, we know there'll be some overlap here tonight, but we're think a lengthy sidebar that may help us. And so let's just dive in here. Let's talk about the mission of the church, our mission, just to start with the word itself. We use it a lot. We should know what it means. It's taken on so many different meanings, but it means an assignment. That's what, that's what we're talking about. What is the assigned purpose? That's why the Great Commission is a great label historically for this, because it is the command, the commission, as I put it on the weekends, the big assignment for the church. Now, there's lots of things that the church is called to do, and we're going to look at those uh, throughout this series. But when we talk about the central governing goal, the the central mission of the church, uh, we need to spend some time uh, carefully understanding that, not just from one passage, but looking perhaps a little more globally through the Scripture. But I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John 17, which of course is Christ's often called the high priestly prayer. He's praying here at the end of his earthly ministry before he goes to the Passion Week to be crucified, betrayed, and and, uh, resurrected. Not in that order, betrayed, crucified, and resurrected. But we want to, uh, want to see an, an interesting statement that he makes here in verse number 4 that is telling if you ponder it. He says this in verse 4, I've glorified you on earth, obviously Christ speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I mean, you talk about mission, you want to talk about assignment, you want to talk about the uh, responsibility that we have. Here's Christ in this uh, humbled state, in submission to the Father, saying, you gave me an assignment, uh, and I, I accomplished that assignment. Whatever it is, and we'll look at it in a second, but it's clear to him what it was. He knew what he was here for. I mean, even that's just inspiring to know that the God that we uh, serve has sent his Christ, and the Christ had a clear assignment, and the Christ that we exalt as Lord is one that we uh, want to emulate. I mean, we'd like our assignment to be clear, Uh, Whatever it was, he said he was done with it, so it was something that he could measure. And when he was finished with it, he said, I've I've accomplished it. It's it's, it's done. Uh, Now, there was more, obviously, to the earthly ministry of Christ that was about to come here in the transitional period, the upper room discourse, all of that. He was going to head to the cross. But when it comes to Christ talking about his mission, and he stated it several times in the gospel when he said, you know, I came to seek and save that which was lost. It, it's, it's great to know that Christ, as he lived his life, saw very clearly in his mind's eye what he was on the planet to do. Uh, and if for nothing else, to walk as he walked means that you and I, as part of the church of Christ, we've been assigned something, a mission from God. We ought to be as clear as he was uh, about what it is. We ought to be able to wake up every day and know what we're here for, why we're called out from the rest And uh, hopefully at the end of our lives, saying the portion at least to which we were assigned, it would be good for us to lay our head down one final time and say we've we've hit the mark. We've accomplished what God has sent us to do. Now, look back at verse 3, and you'll see the immediate context of this statement. He says in verse 3, which is a great overarching, broad statement about the ministry of Christ, he said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, those, of course, go together because, as is said elsewhere, there is no mediator between God and man except Christ. Christ said, if you want to know the Father, uh, come to me. And without me, you can't have any access to the Father. The disciples uh, taught this. The apostles preached it. This was so clear. They go together that if God is the issue here, and if us as fallen, alienated human beings want to get right again with God, that's the 
uh, word we banner, uh, reconciliation. We want to get this thing right from the garden, get it fixed. Then what we need to do is we need to uh, get our lives aligned uh, with Christ. To put it in the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 5.20, don't need to turn there, the words are on the screen, but it says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That was part of what he did that, that was a means to an end. So that we may know him who is true, referring there to the Father, and we are in him who is true and in his Son, it says, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There it is again. Whatever it is in the Bible, it's kind of this you know, to think as broadly as we can, God wants people to know him. Uh, Christ comes to get that done. Christ knows what he's doing and tries to, 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 to position his whole life, his ministry, his teaching, everything he did related to that. Uh, it wasn't to heal people. Those were all strategic. He passed by several sick people and didn't heal them. Uh, whatever he did in terms of his healing ministry, his teaching ministry, uh, his, his death on a cross, his resurrection, these all go toward the direction of seeing people brought to him, reconciled to him so that they might be reconciled to the Father. Uh, the, the assignment for Christ was clear. As a matter of fact, if you look a little broadly, uh, more broadly than Christ in his ministry, you can turn to Acts 17 and see a statement that uh, while it needs to be understand, understood against the backdrop of, of, of you know, broad, uh, other co- contrasting theological statements, at least the purpose here uh, should be clear. We get the heart of God in Paul's sermon to the Athenians here in Acts 17. Uh, great statement, obviously, uh, and we learned so much about evangelism to people that weren't raised in Sunday school. Um, he's preaching to these Greeks. He says this, verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He could have ended the whole thing with Adam and Eve. They sinned, could have trashed the universe, said this this is no good, Uh, zap them, it's it's over. But he doesn't. He plans to to, to carry on this whole thing of populating the planet through Adam and Eve, and he determines their allotted periods, everybody who's born, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He knows where they're going to live, and and, and, and where they're going to reside, that they should, here's the purpose clause, verse 27, seek God. So God makes people so that they will seek him. And he's oriented where they live and, and who they are and when they were born so that they would seek him and perhaps feel their way or grope their way toward him and find him. Uh, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, of course, the, the, the backdrop of theological statements are nobody's seeking after God and that's the problem. God has to draw them and all of that. But the point is, he's, he's revealing the mission that he has. And that is, we've got a lost globe full of people, millions and millions of people, billions of people born that uh, need to be reconciled to their maker. And on God's mind, even the birth of those folks uh, is about putting them on the timeline and in the geographic places so that he might be collecting, as he says in the book of Revelation, when the whole story is told, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, that they might be a people reconciled to himself. Now, you think about Christ coming with a clear mission as to what he was there for, God revealing in many points. I just gave you one example of his heart to see people brought to repentance and reconciled. Then to look at Matthew 28, uh, which we just jumped into on the weekends, but to see it, you know, if we were to just begin from, from Genesis 3 even, from the fall all the way to Revelation 22 at the end of this thing, when we have the New Jerusalem, uh, New Jerusalem inaugurated, you'll see God's heart to see people brought to him. And there's only one way to do that. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ, as John put it. And that is the whole point. And so when Christ comes and he says to his disciples, 
uh, his apostles, the 11 apostles on that hill in Galilee. He says, I've got an assignment for you. And then it all just obviously, it would almost be expected. We would, we would know what the assignment's going to be because we've seen it everywhere in the scripture. And I've just given you a couple samples here, but, uh, but we, that's what we've been studying on the weekend. And if you haven't been with us on the weekend, uh, it, it, it obviously great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That breakdown, as we put up on the screen on the weekends, is helpful for us because we need to understand the grammar of it, which I talked through a couple weeks ago, I think it is now, uh, that we have one primary verb to make disciples. We have three participles here, go, baptizing, teaching. Those participles, which reveal the parts or components of the main verb to make disciples, help us understand with some breadth what the great commission of the church is. Uh, It's no different than God's mission, and it's no different than Christ's mission. Very specific. Uh, And for us to be very focused on what it is, we got to get people connected to Christ. We need to make disciples. Now, since this is prep step, and I always say, well, if you could look at the Greek, you'd see that going, uh, you know, that go is, is, is a participle like baptizing and teaching. And I'm assuming you've been tracking with us on the weekend on this. I just thought I'd throw it up. I know it's all Greek to you. Uh, but if you look closely, you don't even have to understand the language to see the paradigm here. Okay? It's laid out the same way. Look carefully here at the main verb in red, right? That's our word, mathetos, and it's in, in a form here that's a second-person plural imperative that's, that's making a command to these 11 disciples and then every subsequent generation of disciples because he makes the promise, I'm with you always into the end of the age. Clearly, it wasn't just these 11. It was every subsequent generation was called to make disciples. Now, look at the three yellow words here. The first one, do you see the ending on that? That looks like the ending of the next word uh, that's yellow. And then the third word, they all have similar endings. The only difference you might see here, uh, and it's hard for me to get back into the English thinking here, but it looks like a V-T-E-S at the end, right? Uh, there's an E in front of the one at the top, and there's O's at the other two, right? Omicrons uh, versus an epsilon. The epsilon simply tells us that this is a passive participle. Uh, the other two are active participles. They're all aorist participles, which really doesn't matter, other than the sense is, well, that's not true. I'm sorry. The last two are, are active participles. First one is an aorist participle. doesn't matter. Stop, Mike. Uh, what matters here is that they are all three participles. Now, the first one carries some weight of an imperative, which we can get into all the boring grammar of that, but they all clearly are subordinate to the main verb. If you're a Greek student, you look for the main verb, you see the main verb, you translate the main verb, then you look for other things that are relating to the main verb. Specifically, in this case, we've got three participles yelling at us to give us a sense of what surrounds this main verb as the parts of the main verb. Okay? And that's why we have taken this, as most generations of Christians have, and started to see, okay, there are phases to this. Now, I know we've done this very simply on the weekend, but let me do it a little differently here. I don't know how even you would take notes on this, uh, but the point is uh, that you want to see this all come together in your mind so that you'll never forget it. It's clear to you, and you understand how the parts of the main verb here, the participles of this main verb related to the main verb, are all uh, giving us a sense of what the church is here to do, what its mission is, right? So let's go back to English. Whew. Go, make disciples, baptizing, teaching, okay? If you were to lay this out, as I think we did, well, let's start with make disciples, and I've said this before, but uh, this is straight out of a, the, the authoritative uh, Greek lexicon. It is a learner, a pupil, a disciple. 
We get the word mathematics from this word mathetos. It means someone who sits down and studies, someone who is a pupil, a learner, someone who's taking in information. And because of the receptivity that they have to the information, they're carried along as a follower of that teacher. It assumes teaching. It, 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 it clearly implies uh, and explicitly learning, taking in of information. And, and as we'll see, that's such a big part of what the church is called to do. So we've got to make learners, pupils, and disciples who are all now focused on, connected to, following, learning of Christ. That, that's the goal, because that's the object, making disciples uh, of, of Christ. Now, as we try to think this through, at least the structure of the verse, we've got going, baptizing, and teaching. That's the order. Go, therefore, make disciples, uh, baptizing them, uh, and, and teaching them. That's, though, not the chronology of it. If you think it through, right, the chronology of this is they were baptized first, right? If you're going to get somebody who has no interest in Christ, I mean, the first phase of this is they've got to get baptized. The second phase of this is then they're taught to observe all that Christ commanded. And then lastly, at least in chronology, they were made to go, to go and baptize and go and teach, to go and make new disciples and go and teach disciples to observe all that Christ commanded. To put it this way, this may, I mean, this may be redundant, but it'll drive it home. I hope you never forget it. If baptizing is first, to baptize a disciple, this is how it connects, you've got to evangelize that person. Matter of fact, that's the apex of evangelism. When they're done with that stage of discipleship, they make their commitment to Christ, they come before the, the disciples, the other disciples, and they declare externally their commitment to following Christ. Okay? Uh, so if I'm going to be baptizing disciples, I, I, it, it's reliant on and predicated on a process of evangelism. If I'm going to see a disciple observe all that Christ commands, right, then I've got to be in, engaged in teaching. There's not much interpretation there. Uh, if, they're going to, if a disciple is going to be able to go, like the 11 were that day, sent out to do the work of baptizing and teaching, well, then they're going to have to be trained, okay? Evangeliz- evangelizing, teaching, and training. We've called it reaching, teaching, and training. Reaching, teaching, and training. Reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, observing all that he commanded, and training people to serve Christ. Reaching, teaching, training. All that surrounds the hub, which is making disciples. Now follow this. A term disciple, I know we like to define it narrowly, but in this scripture, the term disciple is used of people in every phase. Now, that's hard to think through because you would never think of your next-door neighbor who's a non-Christian as a disciple. But if you're engaging them in evangelism and they've done more than slam the door in your face and they want to continue to dialogue, the Bible would call them a disciple. What are they doing? It makes sense. If I define the word, they're learning. They're a pupil, right? They may not be following with their lives, but they're certainly starting to follow with their mind and their thinking. They are a disciple. So people in the process of being evangelized are called disciples. Example, I'll give you two here. One I spelled out for you. John 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. That's when he turned the water into wine. People think that's a small miracle. They like to be evolutionists, but believe he turned the water into wine. Huge miracle to create out of nothing. Right? The complex chemical composition of wine that happened to taste good with all the proteins and the enzymes exactly as they need to be with a moment of, of, of speaking the word, create something out of nothing with an appearance of, hist- of history and age it never had. Christ does that, and it says here, in showing them and manifesting his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's interesting. They were already disciples. But according to this text, they hadn't yet put their trust in him. 
right, for who he was. And that's critical, at least from our perspective, as what it means to make a Christian. You certainly got to put your trust in Christ as the incarnate one. That was happening in John 2. But they were already called disciples. Uh, John 6, 66, which should be a reference you should never forget. It's a bad verse, you might imagine. Uh, just so happens, God's providence. Uh, John 6, 66. It talks about the disciples started to hear Christ's teaching, and it got pretty tough to swallow. And it says, and his disciples were not following in anymore. Here's how it's put. I'll read some context. Verse 64. There were some, who didn't, some of you, Jesus says, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, parenthetically, it says, those who did not, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples, the people he's just talking to, turned back and no longer walked with him. So he just said, there's some of you out here, the disciples, who don't believe me, don't believe in me, right? And, and, and then he says, uh, you know, he said, makes that hard statement. He makes a comment, John does, that he knew who was believing and who wasn't. And then it says, many of the disciples turned back and that was it for them. Disciples, what do you mean? Well, they were in the process of learning of Christ. They were learning more of Christ. And when they learned enough about Christ to be a deal breaker, then they were done being disciples, okay? That may help, by the way, some of the debate that goes on with this whole can you lose your salvation thing, right? You read some passages and it's so clear, right? I mean, these people, if you're Christians, you're going to endure to the end. I mean, there's no doubt about it. No one can snatch you from my hand. They're going to they're make it to glorification in the great chain of the promise in Romans 8 from the fact that he's going to call them all the way to glorify them. That, right, makes a lot of sense when you start to understand that in the scripture, we see a lot of people that are even called disciples who don't have genuine faith in Christ. Uh, and, and that's why a lot of us, we think any inkling toward Christ, that's Christianity. Anybody wanting to learn more of Christ, Christianity. Anybody that wants to be on Christ's team, well, that's Christianity. It's not in the Bible. Uh, I did a series called Almost a Christian from, from uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, or I think it was maybe just 6. I don't remember. You can look it up. Uh, but I, I talked about the, the, the dangers of dating Christ. Some of you heard that series. That whole discussion in great detail about how the book of Hebrews in that particular section in Hebrews 8 keeps trying to show people you can do a lot as it relates to following Christ and never be genuinely converted. But when you're genuinely converted, see, and we understand what the gospel is and what belief is and what qualifies that, well, then at the end of that phase, ready to be baptized. You see that? Next stage. People in the process of being taught, obviously, are called disciples, and that's not hard because that's what we like to think of. That's how we narrowly define it. Acts 11, 26. I'm just one example. I give you several, but here's one. For a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So the people we're talking about in verse 26 of Acts 11 are the people being taught, right? These are converted people. And they take on a new name, Christians. One of three times it's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, first as a you know, pejorative term or at least a term of derision. But the point is, here we got genuinely converted people. And they're called disciples in this context because they're being taught. Taught to do what? According to Matthew 28, to observe all that Christ commanded. That's a no-brainer. Most of us think that way. But you may not think about your next-door neighbor you're sharing the gospel with as a disciple. If they're not shutting you out yet, they still are. Learning of Christ. Of course, as a Christian, if you're being taught... Your learning of Christ. The term disciple is also used, obviously, to people in the process of being trained. Luke 6, 13, we see this in all the Gospels, the discussion of the disciples being sent out. Uh, when the day came, verse 13, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 who he named apostles. Those were the super sent ones. That's what apostle means. Apostolos means to send out. And, and of course, it wasn't just the 
12 that were called apostles. With, that's the big A, apostles. There were several other people, uh, 70, 72 sent out. Uh, these were people that had been trained, adequately trained, to go do the work of evangelism and what we call discipleship or discipleship proper, if you will, the kind of learning uh, from people that are equipped to share all that Christ commanded. So disciple. We're disciple if we are being evangelized receptively to whenever you stop being receptive or you become a Christian. Your disciple is you're being taught to obey Christ, and your disciple in the process of being trained. But we call them reaching, teaching, training. That all is making disciples. Um, which, by the way, to put it in a different way, if we're taking, talking about teaching and learning, the, 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 the content coming to the disciples, it's good to put it this way. People must learn of Christ, obviously, to be converted. They've got to learn of Christ to be taught to observe all that Christ commanded, and they certainly need to learn of Christ to be sent. Learn, learn, learn. That ought to give us a sense of the mission of the church. It, it should be the reason why we get together, and it makes sense that there's always this teaching going on. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Even evangelism, it's a bunch of teaching. Well, that's what our mission is, right? The church then must, if we're going to think in these three buckets, foster learning of Christ for real conversions. I want to teach as clearly as I can about the gospel to as many people as I can. What was that? Uh, As often as I can about the gospel so I can see people come to Christ. I want to foster learning of Christ for real obedience, right? Making disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. I want to foster learning of Christ for more evangelism. That's what the church is all about. The church should be about teaching, right? And all that that entails, not just behind a pulpit and a microphone and all that, but the transferring of information to see people saved, to see them become obedient, and to see them be ready to do evangelism and what we call discipleship, okay? That's our mission in a nutshell. I want to compare that. I'm just going to pick one little snapshot of what's going on in modern Christianity. And I'm going to pick this one because they've chosen to name themselves the, miss- the missional church, okay? If you've heard that before, if you kind of think you may have heard that before, or you've mastered that and read books about it, show me your hand, okay? Nobody? Oh, please. Missional church? No? Nobody? Some? Thank you. How many of you have never heard that before? Okay. Wow. All right. Well, let me introduce you to the missional church. I get people asking me all the time, obviously, because I'm a pastor, I guess, is this a missional church? They don't mean missions, right? They don't mean foreign missions. They don't even mean, do you believe in the Great Commission, which is the mission of the church, okay? Missional church. I'm going to use the missional church because they've chosen that name. And I want to talk a little bit about the uh, problem that we have. This is just an example, right? I'm not just picking on the missional church. You can pick a lot of things, a lot of different movements, sub-movements within quote-unquote evangelicalism. What I'm trying to get at, though, is the drifting objective of the church. When the church starts to get all excited about doing something else besides reaching, teaching, and training, and the missional church is a classic example of this, Um, Now, I guess like the emergent church, there are some things that are good to say about the missional church. Uh, Most of these sub-movements within evangelicalism that if you read, you know, blogs or Christianity Today or whatever, you'll recognize they're they're a response or reaction to things that they don't like about the church. And a lot of the things that prompt these, I'm totally with them. I get it. I don't like that about the church either. The problem is in their reaction to things they don't like about the church, they've gone in a direction that's not uh, clear about our task. We've begun to drift off center from what we're called to do. As it relates to the missional church, we can talk about the emergent church or a lot of other things, the return to orthodoxy and liturgy or whatever. But if we talk about this, and it sounds so good, uh, because what they don't like about the church is the way the church has kind of created this fortress mentality. And I even like 
the concern that the missional churches had about the fact that we don't even like the idea that we're supposed to all come together to, to do evangelism. In other words, they say inviting someone to church in a lot of modern evangelicals' mind is evangelism, right? Are you doing any evangelism? And to them, they mean, am I inviting anybody to church? Now, I hope you're trained enough here at Compass Bible Church to know that's not evangelism, right? As a matter of fact, when the pastor gets up and is bold enough to say at times, hey, you know what? We gather to train disciples and teach disciples, and we scatter to do evangelism. You recognize this. Hey, really, that's not true biblical evangelism, although at church people might get saved. That's not what we talk about when we talk about the Great Commission of the Church. We recognize, as we said two weeks ago on the weekend in our series on on, on Sundays and Saturday nights, we need to go out there and do evangelism. We need to understand what the gospel is, and we need to go out and do evangelism. Now, the missional church started with that as a concern. And the seminal book that came out, I don't know, 15 years ago on this, and a bunch of other books came out as a result of it, tried to help the church to say, wait, we need to get out there. But when they said we need to get out there, unfortunately, they didn't say, let's stay centered on what we're called to do, reconciling people to Christ. What happened is the mission got tilted off a bit, like a lot of these movements do, because we began to talk about the fact that we need to, just to use some quotes here, I don't know, let's find some, contextualize the gospel, okay? We need to live out our Christianity because our lives are the embodiment of the church, okay? We need to um, impact the community. That sounds good. Be the church as individuals in the community. Uh, and here's, what, here's where it started to go. And we need to grow in our acts of service to our community. Right? We need to recognize that we are the only church that sometimes people see. Uh, we need to tell the story of God by our lives with our compassion. We need to begin to show our heart, a heart that can transform the heart of a city. And then those methods of compassion will look like social justice, engaging the poor, correcting inequalities in our society. And so the missional church, with a great intentional or initial motive, rather, to try and say, listen, it's not about us all just coming together here and talking about Christ together and growing up in Christianity and you thinking you're doing evangelism by inviting people to learn your hymns and sit here in church with you. It's about getting out there. I'm with you so far. But when getting out there then turns the gospel away from the message of reconciliation to a message of I want to be heard and I want you to see me as a person of compassion because all I want to do is bring the love of Christ to my community. I begin to see a common thread that I've read about all throughout church history, which basically is so tempting for churches because what it does is it allows the community to do this. Oh, that's great. Now, you may not have heard of the missional church, but I bet you've heard of this. Churches, some of them huge churches in California that have canceled their Sunday services and sent people out to do acts of community service. Tell me you've heard that. Anybody heard that? Oh, that's more people. That's missional thinking, right? And what that does, I guess in the best you know, statement of it, is it's supposed to open up an ear for the gospel, right? A lot of times, though, at least in what I read and what I've seen, it becomes an end in itself, And it's so attractive because I certainly want people to look at the church and think, we're really nice guys, and we care about you if you're hurting. And if you have a problem, we want to fix it. And if you have a need, we want to attend to it. And if any way we can kind of shape up our, you know, reputation so that you don't think we're over there in the corner just thinking about you all going to hell and preaching against all the things that you do, uh, then I can understand why it'd be great for me to go out and to wash the neighborhood curbs or gutters. It'd be great for us to go and to set up this thing or that thing that everybody's going to applaud. 
It's easy to do. I mean, I can create a whole list of things that I guarantee you almost everybody in our city is going to love. Here's the problem. The the message of reconciliation, even if I see that as an open door to talk about Christ, will eventually get around to this. You're sinful. You fall short of the glory of God. Before God, you as a person are rejectable as you stand. There's only one way to fix the problem. That's through contrition and seeing your problem the way God sees it and that your sin is utterly sinful before him. You need to repent of that sin and you need to put your trust in the only solution to the sin problem. And then, by the way, you need to live according to his rules because I'm going to teach you everything that he commanded you. And you need to do those things because he's the king, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth. Guess what? That's when it was really cool that you washed out my gutters this week. Comes to a screeching halt, right? I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that you care about me. I'm not really interested in hearing that I'm going to hell and that there's only one way to fix the problem. And it's becoming one of you, see? The missional church, which is just one manifestation, we saw it in the social gospel, we've seen it in all kinds of, of, of melding of political power and, and, and religious liturgy, we've seen all kinds of ways in which the church has tried to become much more palatable, much more engaged so that people might recognize that, hey, they're not so bad after all. Now, I'm not at all against the principle of, as Jesus said, making friends by means of mammon. I get that. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to pick up the check at lunch with the guy I'm trying to share the gospel with. That's a good thing. But the whole point of our mission before God, our task before God, is to take a message of the gospel where people need reconciliation. And if they don't, they're, they're as the Bible says, Romans chapter 2, storing up for themselves wrath for the day of God's judgment. As Paul said, we are a people bringing the fragrance of Christ to the world. And as he put it, to some it's the smell of death. And to others, it's the smell of life. That's the dividing line. When my message comes, if you are not called to salvation, you will eventually think, I stink, right? And my message stinks, and you'll reject it. It'll be repugnant to you. And if you're called to eternal life, it'll be great. But the problem is I can't so cloak the mission of the church, and I want to go do acts of service. I just want to go and express compassion for people that are hurting and think I'm doing the mission of the church. Now, that may not be taking place, uh, in, at least in your circles or how you experience your friends at church or whatever it might be locally. But it is something that I think even in good evangelical churches has taken hold in their foreign missions projects. I've heard people say in what I would think would be evangelical churches that believe in repentance and faith, saying this about missions overseas. It's all about us simply showing compassion to them. Matter of fact, I heard it defined this way on a stage with thousands of people in attendance. When they got their missionaries up there and introduced them to the church, the point was this. It doesn't matter what we say. It just matters that we're there and that we care. Okay? Now, when missions is defined in a church that, that, that banners itself as an evangelical church and defines foreign missions as it just matters that we're there and that we care, see, we've lost the purpose of what the church is all about. Ultimately, we're out teaching people about Christ, either to the place of conversion, evangelism, to the place of mature obedience, right? Training them up, teaching them all, all that Christ commanded, or training them to do evangelism and discipleship. That's the goal of the church. I cannot think I've done it because I've healed a hurt, right? Or I fixed a, a problem, or I've been generous and kind, or that the world has said, the church, they sure are full of nice guys. That's not the point. And it cannot be my goal. And I can never think that that somehow substitutes for preaching the gospel. Now, that's all new to you, right? You think, well, I don't even hear churches doing that. Uh, You'll hear more and more of it. Because when we get to things like homosexuality 
And it eventually becomes the real dividing line for churches in our country. And it will, and it's coming quick. It is exponentially accelerating. When people want to say things like, well, we are a church that believes in what the Bible says regarding our sexual ethics, it will be a time when there's no longer an opportunity, even with that one issue, to have a palatable reception by the world. And it will be over. And you've seen churches and entire denominations already say, if that offends you, I will give that up as a, as a belief. And they have. And it continues to happen at an alarming rate in, in modern evangelicalism. The question's got to be, what is the purpose of the church? If it is to convert people with a message of the gospel that cannot be altered, which is about sin, about judgment, about repentance, about faith, about the substitutionary death of Christ and the exclusivity of Christianity, if that changes, we're not doing it anymore. If when it comes to teaching all that Christ commanded and we now say, well, those things, if they offend you, I'm not going to teach those anymore. If you're really going to turn me off just because of that one doctrinal issue, right, then I'll concede it. Then we're not doing the work of the Great Commission anymore. And if we're not training people to be uncompromising about the gospel and Christian discipleship, we're not doing the Great Commission anymore. Which means with the pressure of an increasingly apostate world, I call it that because so many people claim some form of godliness at some time, if the pressure continues to force against the church, there won't be many left that are committed to really what the mission and task and the assignment of the church is. They'll have the, the banner up there with Christ's face on it. Hey, we're all about Christ. But Christ will be so redefined that we're never really hitting the target of what the church is all about. And that ought to be concerning for all of us. And you ought to pray for the church that you're at. If this is your church, pray for us that we will continue to be faithful in the call of the gospel. Because we do want to hear, well done, good and faithful church, as well as good and faithful service. We should never let the gospel get fuzzy. We should never allow our concern with getting a hearing to compromise the aspects of what God asked us to do. The details. In other words, reaching the world for Christ is not acts of kindness. Reaching the world for Christ is not life improvement. Okay, and and all you got to do is really look around evangelicalism. That's how it's being defined so often. That leads me to this. Well, what about the poor? Because that, by the way, is almost the quintessential act of Christianity today, with so many popular authors and speakers. It's all about helping the poor. Just want to talk about this sidebar. Is it grayed out? That means you can sleep through this if you're not interested. But here goes. Let's talk about the church and the poor. Let's start with a few basic things here. Letter A. And, and I'll send you home to study this in detail, but you, you need to understand the surprising command for the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here, here it is in a nutshell. Let me explain it for you. Uh, I'll even use the words of the text itself. Here's an, a lengthy explanation from the Apostle Paul, the sent one of Christ, giving instructions to a pastor, Pastor Timothy in the church of Ephesus. And the whole point of that section on widows is an attempt by the apostle to keep the church on task and not to, quote, burden the church with helping the poor widows. That's verse 16 I'm quoting, right? right? Those were social needs in the church. And he said, you're not supposed to be meeting those social needs in the church unless they're absolutely necessary. And that was some very stringent criteria. Now, think this through. We talk often about, if you ever heard me preach on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say, by the way, all of that interpretation that people have about that he's just turning over the Old Testament rule, lies. Study it carefully. What you'll find in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you've heard it said, but I say, is he takes a command like you shouldn't murder. And he looks at the command and the direction of that command. And he says, now here's the deal. You have somehow in your life and in the teaching of your rabbis gotten to a place where you're allowing your thinking to move in the direction of murder and you're justifying that as okay. 
I'm saying the whole point of the scripture is to point you in the opposite direction, right? Whether it's adultery, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say this, if you lust for a woman in your own heart, what are you doing? You're moving in the direction of adultery. And the whole point of the principle was to teach us something about fidelity. And of course you shouldn't commit adultery, but you should not be moving in your life in the direction of the sin. You should be understanding the command moving in the opposite direction. You see that? And whether it's oaths or whether whatever it is in the list of you've heard it said, but I say, they're all the same. They're trying to move people to recognize if that's the command, then that would be moving us in this direction. Here, the reason I bring all that up, 1 Timothy 5 is clearly moving Timothy in one direction. And that is when it comes to the mission of the church, I don't want you to think it's helping people socially, even Christian widows. The point is for you not to say, how can we help the church reach more poor people? fix more poor people, help help more hurting people, show more compassion to the society of the downtrodden. That's not what's happening in 1 Timothy 5. The surprising thing about 1 Timothy 5 is he's saying, oh, we need to move it in the opposite direction, which is what, throwing rocks at old widows? No, it's not about hurting them. It's about keeping the church on task. And the task of the church is not this. The task of the church is this. Now, I'm telling you, that's a sermon I don't think I've ever heard. Now, I don't hear as many sermons as you you do, Uh, but I'm telling you, I... I don't hear people talking about 1 Timothy 5, let alone showing us that this is a corrective, that the church doesn't get lost in doing good things. It needs to be doing the best thing. And the best thing is not helping poor people, okay? Now, are we to help poor people? Let's talk a little bit more. A couple, couple things. Hermeneutical reminder. The hermeneutical reminder that I've got to give you is one I've given you many times, and that is this. The distinction between the Old Testament and the New, which, by the way, it's in the Old Testament where you get a lot of teaching about the poor, Matter of fact, in the epistles, you get very few, and all of them are within the context of the church, and Christians within the church are within the larger body of Christ that may need help. Look them all up. Look them all up. That's what you'll see. The Old Testament, though, now we're looking at the poor, the lame, the blind, and all of that. Now, obviously, we get some references in the gospel, and some are metaphorical, but that's another thing you can deal with that. But let me just say this. If you compare the bulk, which is you know 90% of the information about what we're to do with the poor, you're going to find that in the Old Testament. What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? If you're reading in the Old Testament about the poor, what you need to look at is the context. And what you'll find is so often those are instructions to a nation living among nations, setting up a structure to deal with the poor. In the New Testament, right, most of the New Testament is dealing with an organization, an international organization living under the authority of a government all over. Some of them are scattered to the diaspora. Some are over here in Jerusalem. Some are in the Roman colonies in Asia Minor. But they're living under an authority of the government So the direction isn't to the Roman government. The direction is to the people living in the international organization. If you separate that in your mind, we begin to understand some distinctions about the teaching of the Bible and the poor. More on that in a minute. Letter C. There are obvious trans-testamental, and I just came up with that. I've never read that before, but I thought it was helpful. There are obvious trans-testamental principles, clearly. Like what? Like we should not be greedy, we should not be hoarders, we should not be stingy, we should be generous, we should be merciful, we should be compassionate, we should be kind, we should be open-handed, we should lend freely. All of those things are principles you'll find in both Testaments. So when the Bible talks to people, right, clearly we are not into greed, we are not into hoarding, we are not into stinginess, we are not into coveting, we are not into materialism. It is not about amassing wealth, building bigger silos, st- sticking more grain in them so that I can live on easy street for the rest of my life. That's not what the Bible co- com- com- commends ever condemns those things. Principles of of, of mercy, generosity, sharing, all of that is always extolled in the scripture. So those are always in place. Individuals should live that way. Keep thinking now. Letter D. There is a biblical hierarchy of responsibility. 
Again, I'm teaching ecclesiology right now. I'm teaching the responsibility of the church. That's why I'm bringing this up. And where does the church fit in? Because today, if you're not being hit with it, obviously this is not your career, but if, if, if the more you read about what the church is supposed to be, the more you feel the pressure, not only of the world who likes us just being, you know, philanthropists, but even within the church and the seminaries trying to get the church to really be all about, and, and right now the expression of it is the missional church, all about acts of compassion and service. And why do you guys, why don't you just cancel half your services, just go out and serve the community because that's what Christians should do and expressing our love in real tangible ways. That's the increasing pressure. So what we need to understand is the church and our responsibility when we look at those things. Where, do we, where does that work? Well, a couple things. When it comes to the poor, we're speaking specifically of that. The first thing the Bible says in terms of the responsibility for you being able to have a roof over your head, having clothes on your back and food to eat every day is you. That is, I mean, a biblical principle and you can find it all over the place. It's repeated often in the Bible, but let's go to a New Testament text, 2 Thessalonians 3. You don't need to turn there. It's on the screen, verses 10 and 11. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. I guess he's giving it a lot. I guess this is a regular staple of his ethical teaching uh, to these people. If anyone is not willing to work, now this is a third-person imperative, let him not eat. Did we talk about those this weekend, if you were with us on the weekend? Third-person imperative. That's not just don't. That's don't let others. Don't aid others. You can't, you can't make this happen in someone else's life or you're in sin. Right? If someone is not willing to work, you are not allowed to aid them in eating. Don't let them eat. For we hear that some among you are, they, you walk in idleness, which is a bit of an oxymoron, right? Uh, but isn't because he's going to say, you're not busy at work, you're busy bodies. No, you're busy about stuff, but it isn't about working, not gainfully working, being gainfully employed. That's not what you're busy doing. And, and Paul says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not up with that. That's bad. That's biblically bad. You can see the principle in the Old Testament. I think in Proverbs 16 is it that says, it's the laborer's hunger that, that, that presses him on. His appetite works for him. The whole point is you should work and provide for yourself. That is what you should do. If you're not willing to do the hard work to get a roof over your head and clothes on your back and food on the table, then the Bible says, I shouldn't be helping you. I certainly don't want to help you break God's law. So I don't want to do that. That's a biblical principle. But some people, it's not that they're not willing, it's that they're not able, right? Well, if you're not able, to quote a little bit from 1 Timothy 5, which is your homework assignment, That's what your family is for. Look at how the text puts it. And again, remember the direction of this text. 1 Timothy 5 is about the church not settling or even moving in the direction of trying to be a social institution to help people financially. It's about propagating the gospel. It's about the Great Commission, reaching, teaching, and training. He says this, verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, context is the widow, right? Grandpa's died, or my, my, my dad has died, my mom doesn't have an income, she doesn't have food on the table. If I don't provide for my own mother, my relative, especially the members of my own household, then he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever, because even non-Christians usually do that. And therefore, the teaching of the church was this. Don't put those people in the church role. Don't expect the church to be handing out that. It's not the church is in compassion. It's that there's a hierarchy of responsibility, and it goes first to the person. And if you're not willing to do the work, you shouldn't be eating, and I'm not going to let you eat. I certainly am going to provide for you. And then if you're in need and you need food, right, the church is not going to provide for you because if, if you have a family here, the family should be taking care of you. That's the biblical hierarchy of, of responsibility, immediate family. If you look up earlier in the text, he talks about extended family. He repeats the principle that he, he doesn't repeat it because this comes first. But in verse number four, he states the principle, but he also expands it. He says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them 
the children and grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household, their own family, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Again, context, don't put them on the rolls of the church. That money's not to be spent for that. It's to be spent for the propagation of the gospel, reaching, teaching, and training. But if you're even a grandchild and you have a grandparent, in this case, a grandmother, and she didn't have enough to eat, it's your responsibility to take some of your money that you earned and to take care of her. Number four, society, government programs. Now, I'm building the hierarchy, and I guess you could argue with the order of this, but I think this is in the right place, and I don't have time. I'm already talking 100 miles an hour. I could explain this to you another time, but let me at least give you some biblical foundation for this principle, okay? Deuteronomy 26 was the triennial tax. Uh, You understand, by the way, before we even read the text, a few words we need to understand. Tithe. What does the word tithe mean? Tenth, okay? Note that carefully. Tithe means tenth, okay? So there was a tenth that you had to give. That was called a tithe. There There were several of them, believe it or not, that you had to give. Some for the Levites, some for, you know, uh, the, the poor in this case. This was the triennial tax. Every third year you had to pay this one. I call it a tax because it's mandatory. It's obligatory. I mean, it didn't it like when we passed the bag. No one's, no one's got a gun to your head, right? Nobody's going to well, cough it up, man. You didn't put any money in there. This, that's what we saw in the Old Testament under at least the, the heading of the free will offering. More on that another time because there, there is obligation there. But in terms of amount, this was an amount that was specified. 10% every third year. Now, you had two other taxes at least, um, actually three. It's, it gets to about 33% when you add them all up. But the point is this. Here's the one for the poor, verse 12. Now, remember, hermeneutical principle. It is, a, it is a set of instructions, in this case, for a nation living among nations. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce, this is food now, in the third year, which is the year of tithing, this particular tithe at least, giving to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, comma, and on it goes. But that's the definition of this triennial tax for the poor. You have to give it. It's not whether you want to. You don't go home and pray about it. It's a required tax. What was it for? For this government to take care of its poor, people that couldn't take care of themselves. Okay? Now, that principle uh, is at work in our day, is it not? Do you pay taxes? Yeah? No? Only half of you? Well, that's about right, isn't it? Uh, didn't see many heads nod when I said that. Just to let you know how it relates, and I, I took this title from a Kiplinger uh, article, and I, several, if you want the sources on some of this, Health and Human uh, Services uh, website, Washington Times, I got some of this data from, Yahoo Financial Pages, several sources for, the, for this information, okay? When it comes to what you pay in your taxes, you need to understand this. Much like in the Old Testament, when you brought that tithe for the poor, which was required, the IRS makes sure it's required of us as well. Our tax dollars to individual needs. And these are just facts. This is not a political statement because I'm not saying anything about what what should or shouldn't be. I'm telling you the way it is. 20%, right, of those dollars go to Social Security. That's the existing retirees. 15% to Medicare. You know what that's all about, right? 7% to Medicaid, which is dealing with a lot of the subsets of those who are disabled, veterans, health care, and all that. 16% to all the other things that relate to welfare, housing, uh, the the $80 billion in food tax, uh, food stamps, rather, food tax. Uh, It's a different topic. Um, At least in in the aggregate of the pages that I could provide for you, 58% of what the total budget of the revenue from our federal government going to the 
individuals, which is higher than it's ever been. It's twice what it's ever been in terms of individual recipients of tax money. So that when you pay those taxes, now I understand this, the government's paying way out more than it takes in. That's the problem and blah, blah, blah. You've heard enough of that. I don't need to get into that whole thing. But when you pay the taxes, you get a lot of your tax money going to to poor people. Uh, Of our state tax, 30% of our state tax, according to the Health and Human Services website, is going to meet the needs of individual poor who need it. Now, again, that's their definition of poor. Um, which is another story altogether. And it's weird to talk about the poor as an Orange County pastor in California, in the United States of America, when poor people all have satellite TV, cell phones, and big rims on their SUVs. Uh, But, I mean, read it. I mean, the the poor in America, and are there poor in America? Sure, I've lived in Chicago, I've seen people living under the bridges and all that, I get that. But by and large, we're not the kind of country that the New Testament was written in, right, in terms of the countries represented there, or the Old Testament certainly was written in, or a lot of places around the world, if you go around the world. Um, That's another sermon. But what is the point? When it comes to helping the poor, here was what we often saw, that we wanted, even if then there's a case to be made grammatically in 1 Timothy 5, that even some of the references that Paul is making here relate to those safety nets beyond the family and the extended family and the individual person if they couldn't care for themselves. I'm not trying to draw too many conclusions from that. I'm just saying there is a lot of help to be had uh, for the poor. Keep going. Not enough. I understand. Number five. Oh, but even with all of that, I, I, I still have a need, right? And clearly there's a case to be made that at times there, that happens. My family's all poor. My grandkids are all poor. The government assistance that I've gotten, not enough. The, the food stamps I have, it doesn't pay for everything. Fine, Okay. As it relates to the context of the New Testament, which I think you can make this case, look at everything, every New Testament epistle, they're all relating to a Christian receiving help, in, in the primary case, from their own church. Back in our minds to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, honor widows, there's a command, who are truly widows. Now there's the, there's the catch, right, in terms of making sure they're truly widows, but clearly Paul is conceding, Timothy, as the leader of this church, some of your budget has to be for this stuff. I, I get that. Then, as I said, there's some stringent qualifications. She's got to be a truly, truly a widow. What does that look like? Verse 5 says this. She who is truly a widow, she's left all alone, no grandkids, no, no relatives, no, no, no kids to deal with it. Right? She's all alone. She's godly. She's set her hope on God. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She's known for her prayer life, her intercession. Verse 6 says uh, she's... Uh, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. In other words, not interested there in helping that kind of person. This is all inspired instruction to church leaders here. Verse 9, let the widow be enrolled. In other words, she can receive the aid from the church if she is not less than 60 years of age. 59-year-olds can't be on the list. Having been the wife of one husband, even her past life and, and track record matters in this case. Having a reputation for good works, right? She's, she's known for living out her Christianity in tangible ways. She's brought up children. She's shown hospitality. She's washed the feet of the, the, feet of the saints. She's cared for the afflicted. She's devoted herself to every good work. Do you see the direction of this text? We've got to make sure this is a widow indeed and meet some stringent criteria. Then go ahead. Now read the books, whether it's the emergent church or the missional church or whatever kind of church you want to talk about that's being pushed in the pages of most Christian periodicals today. It has nothing of the flavor here that shows us that the Apostle Paul has such a concern for the real task of the church that this should not curtail that. And we ought to make sure that what you're doing, Timothy, as it relates to the personnel and the budget and the direction and the time and the effort and the resources of that church is going to promote the things that transcend 
the cultural needs of this world. And they work on issues like reaching people with the gospel, teaching people to be spiritually mature and godly, and training people to serve Christ. Now, this does not speak to the individual need of a person or the individual concern of a person to meet a need. What did I say? Generosity is always looked upon as a good thing. Acts of mercy is always looked upon as, as a positive thing. Greed, materialism, hoarding, all those things are bad things. I'm talking about the church. I'm lecturing on the church. When it comes to the church, the church should all be all about the Great Commission. It should be all about the task of the church. And again, maybe I'm preaching to myself here because that's the pressure upon every seminary grad, every church leader to redefine it, to get real fuzzy about what the gospel is and to move the church in, in, in a direction that doesn't acknowledge the concern and priority and preeminence of the real task or the assignment, the Great Commission from God. Number six, another church, another church. In other words, if I'm somebody who can't get help from my self because I'm incapable, it's not that I'm not willing, and I can't get it from my family, and I can't get it from my extended family, and I can't get it from the government or the societal uh, institution that's set up to do it, whatever it might be, in our case, all the charity organizations, then my church, they're poor, they can't help me, whatever it might be, well, then the next line of defense that we see in the Bible, at least by way of example, is other churches. Uh, For instance, Paul writes, Uh, to the Romans talking about the Macedonians. And he says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under persecution. There were problems there. One church in a good time, he says this also to the Corinthians who were also well-to-do, they were able to help a church that was under persecution and people weren't even getting fed in some cases. And that church was able to help the other Christians at another church. There was the second line when the family, the church, the circumstances all precluded someone from meeting their basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing. And then lastly, which is usually where it starts for people, and that is non-Christians coming to Christians going, give me, give me some of your money. Uh, Galatians 6.10, certainly, or at least in principle, it's never in command in the scripture for the church, that is. Uh, but certainly, you know, Galatians 6 would be a guiding principle when, when there is opportunity. So then, as we have opportunity, obviously this is directed to individuals, but in principle works for the church Let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And that is the priority we've seen throughout the New Testament, so much so that every epistle dealing with the poor is always talking about poor Christians, not poor non-Christians. But here's one exception where we see at least the idea of when you have an opportunity, assuming all the other criteria has been met, that we're able then to contribute to that need, at least as the purpose of the church goes. You do understand the distinction I'm making here, right? And, and it's between you and God what you want to do with the guy who sits at the corner of Walmart or Costco or whatever, um, you know, which you could ask me about another time. But I'm teaching about what the priority of the church is uh, as it relates to the church and what we're called to do. All right? The church in our fallen world, Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at this text and uh, think about the church's role in the world. I mean, that's what we're doing tonight. What is the role of the church in the world? Well, it's to evangelize the world, obviously. That's the Great Commission. Uh, it's not just to dig wells or hand out mosquito nets or, you know, hand out stuff to people on the street or whatever it might be. Uh, those may be a part of a mission. If it's rightly prioritized, I can understand that. But it's certainly not the end, missional, end mission of, of the church. What about the world in general? Let's think of these things and the, the categories that Christ gave us here in Matthew 5. Verse 13, he says this, speaking globally, literally, you are the salt of the earth, speaking to the Christians, the disciples there. Right? But if the salt has lost its taste, then how shall it be salty again? Or how shall it be, how saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do people put a lamp, uh, light a lamp rather, and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, now these are long-standing, easy to remember, very familiar and, and oft-repeated analogies, salt and light. Context, the world, the lamp, on a city set on a hill. This is clearly the picture of what we're asking about. How is the church supposed to relate to the world? Uh, well, let's think through these analogies one at a time. Four things. We'll hit salt twice and light twice. Salt. Salt, I mean, everyone will make this connection. It's something that preserves. It was, you know, the refrigerator of the old, you know, ancient world. It was a per- per- preserving agent. Clearly, the salt and saltiness and all of that brings the person's mind to that. We're making a guess at that, but it seems like an educated, uh, very uh, safe assumption that whatever he's talking about here in terms of saltiness, there's some effect that we have on society that's positive and preserving. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, and again, uh, just to make this leap, hopefully it's not too much of a leap, but to make the, the safe assumption that this is what we're dealing with with this analogy, because he doesn't define it for us in context. But let's look at this text. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. If you've not turned there yet, get there. I'll start in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, verse 2 says, not to quickly be shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or by spoken word in a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. This is starting to sound a lot like the book of Daniel. Somebody coming, major figure, going to be this person, sets himself up above everybody, everything else. Book of Revelation, I'm a futurist, I think that's all future. It's sometime coming where this antichrist, the you know, John said a lot of antichrists have gone out. There's this antichrist, this main figure, this man of lawlessness coming. Well, all of that would have had to happen if you think you missed it. You didn't miss it because that has to happen. And, and if that happens, then you might have missed it. You, you would have missed it. But that hadn't happened yet. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. There's something in the way. For the mystery of lawlessness, oh, it's already at work. Just like John said, Paul says the same thing. There's a lot of antichrist. There's a lot of work against the gospel. But only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, remember, it was a what up there in verse 6. You know what is restraining him. Now it's a he. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So at the coming of Christ, this one figure gets destroyed by Christ. Seems to mirror perfectly what's going on in the book of Revelation. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders and with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends to them a strong delusion delusion, so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here are people who when they miss this event, when we get gathered up, as Paul said, uh, they will believe this guy because they refuse the gospel in their time and they will go on and things will go you know, from bad to worse during this time. What's restraining him? I mean, now there's lots of theories on that, but I'm of the opinion, as many people are, that what we're dealing with is the work of him through the what? The work of the Spirit of God, or if you want to put it in terms of Christ, as he put it in Matthew 28, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As we go about the work of evangelism and making disciples and reaching, teaching, training, he's active in the world through us. 
and the what that's going to be removed that will then unleash this time on earth where the lawless one will be exposed that will then ramp up to the destruction of him by the coming of the Lord is the church of Jesus Christ active about its work. If we don't do our work, see, uh, then we're no good. We're good for nothing. We're here to do the work that God has us to do that I guess in terms that, I'd like, that I like to use, we are here in our work as, as godly people presenting a godly message and calling people to repentance. We're restraining evil in the world just by our mere presence and activity and engagement in the Great Commission because it's more than the Great Commission. We're teaching people to observe all that Christ commanded. Our ethical standards, our understanding of what's right and wrong defined by heaven itself, inscribed on the pages of Scripture, this is the thing that preserves the evil in the world. That's the kind of salt analogy I think that Christ has in mind as he tells us that's what we are. Now, if we lose that, which the church is losing when we like to say, hey, if that doctrine offends you, we'll just concede it and give it up. But if we stick to what the Bible says and what he told us is right and wrong, and we not only preach a gospel of repentance, but we teach disciples to continue to observe all that Christ commanded, then we are going to be something in this world that will hold back that evil. And the lawlessness, though it's at work already, it's going to be unleashed when we're gone. So that's our job. That's why we have to proclaim a godly message with God's, by God's grace, living a godly life, right? Hopefully with a church that is having a godly influence in every society that we're a part of, we need to continue to restrain evil. The second analogy he gave us was light. And light is supposed to shine and it's supposed to dispel darkness and it's supposed to expose So let's look at the text where this analogy is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, which mirrors what salt is all about. Take a look at this, Ephesians chapter 5. After the introductory verses there in verses 1 and 2, he gets into our ethics. He says this about the church, about Christians, to the extent that we're winning people to Christ, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, I hope, uh, even in a little church like ours, compared to all of Christendom, uh, we're changing people's ethics in their workplace, in their neighborhoods, and what they listen to, what they subscribe to, what they pay for, the apps they buy, whatever it might be, we're making a difference. Why? Because we're about this, things that are countercultural. Sexual immorality, we're not into that. Verse 3, but sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, they must not even be named among you. We're not even interested in that stuff, as is proper among the saints. The expulsion of that, the absence of that is, is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no coarse joking. They're out of place, but instead the There must be thanksgiving. Now, the world loves those things, but the churches, we grow this army of disciples. We're not interested in that. We don't buy that. We don't go to that. We don't watch that. We're not getting entertained by that. We're different. You may be sure of this. This is one of the reasons we are not interested in it. Verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, covetous, right? That is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's what we're supposed to be, light. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That ought to be our prayer every day. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. We're not going to be like them. But instead, here's the word, expose them. For it is even shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. And when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's the task of evangelism. You can see that. Coming from what? People that are concerned about godliness. Look carefully then how you walk. 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see that contrast of the world and the church, godly church, not interested in the junk of this world, living for Christ, proclaiming a godly message, shining the truth of the, of the gospel, not only with their message of repentance, but by the things that they affirm, the things that they buy, the things that they do, the places that they go, right? I mean, it is, to put it more on a offensive terms, it promotes the truth. Salt restrains evil. That's what the church should be doing in society. And light is exposing the truth. It's promoting the truth. It's saying this is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what we should and shouldn't do. Now, the world doesn't like that. No one likes the hall monitor, right, in elementary school. I mean, but that's what we're here to do on the planet until we're taken out of the way and then all hell breaks loose on earth, right? That The man of lawlessness is revealed with the activity of Satan. Now, let me just give you two more passages just to continue the paradigm here. Uh, we have to be, as Christ said, salty salt. If you lose your saltiness, then what are we going to do? We're no good anymore. So let me go another layer deep here as it relates to how we live. Let me just take you to a passage. It was too good to miss. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now let's just preach to us. Okay, if I'm going to be salty, what do I need to attend to in my own life? Well, here's what 2 Corinthians 6 says, the end of it. Start in verse 14. I've got to be careful about my alliances. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, you with me? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Interesting for all the Christians these days going around saying, we're not interested in the law. The law is bad. The law is bad. What? I mean, here's how he makes this, this contrast. Righteousness with lawlessness. People that aren't interested in the law. We should have, there's no partnership there. What fellowship has light with darkness? There's, there's the image again. What accord has Christ of Bial? And what portion does the believer share with unbelievers? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. If you do what? Look at verse 17. Go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises of what? Intimacy with God, if I'm willing to separate. Great. Then, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That, by the way, the reason I always want to read verse 1 of chapter 7 with the end of chapter 6, it defines what separation means. Okay? What I mean by that is that in my life, I need to guard godly distinctions. Not only do I not want to partner up with people that have completely the opposite values that I do, that their God is their stomach, so to speak, as, as Paul said to the Philippians, and, and my God is God. I, there's no partnership there. So I'm not going to feel like we're moving in the same direction. I've got to be careful of my alliances. But God says, you'll be intimate with me as you separate yourself from them. What are we talking about? Verse 1, I'm talking about the defilements of the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I'm mindful of God. I'm concerned about what God thinks, and I'm living different, a different kind of life. Salty salt is the kind of salt that tries to maintain those godly distinctions. It's a guarded part of our lives. If you start looking like the world, which, by the way, going back to church theory these days, a lot of church you know, philosophies about you trying to look as much like the world as you can. 
I'm not talking about what you wear, all that, although that may have some bearing on godliness, but I'm talking about the way that we just want to fit in. I mean, I've heard preachers justify the fact that they use profanity in the pulpit just so that they can relate to their audience. I'm thinking, you see what I'm saying? That makes no sense to me. I mean, it certainly doesn't square with Scripture. I need to be separate in my vocabulary. Let no unwholesome word proceed from my mouth is what the Bible says. And and I'm not going to try to fit in with the world as it relates to those issues of defiling my spirit or my body. I want to be holy in what I say and what I do. See, that kind of separateness is the saltiness. I've got to think that Christ is getting at in the passage, and I've got to remain that way. I've got to guard the distinctions in my own life. If the church is going to be what God wants it to be in restraining evil and promoting the truth, it's got to. The individuals of the church have to guard those kinds of godly distinctions in their lives. Don't look just like the world. Of course, I don't mean look in terms of your appearance, although sometimes, yeah, I, I mean that. But I mean in how you value things, what you love, what you prioritize. It's not about trying to fit in with the world. Light. If you think back to the analogy, not only say saltiness that's, or salt that's salty, but he talks about light, light that's shining, right? A light that's set on a hill. You don't put it under a bucket or a basket. You let it be seen. That's the image of light here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5. So that I make sure, by the way, that I don't define separate the wrong way. There have been periods in church history where separate was defined by physically being separate, going away, making sure we don't interact. Communes, Christian communes, monasteries, right? The, the desert fathers, they were called. They went out there, the hermits, right? In church history is what we call them. That, that, that word, by the way, came down to us because Christians said, I got to separate from the ungodly people. Ah, but that's not what Christ said. He talked about the light shining and making sure people could see it. What kind of people? People that needed to see the, the light. First Corinthians chapter five. Did you find it? Look at verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Ah, there you go. That's it. That's it. Told you. We got to leave. Not meaning, verse 10, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy people of the world or the swindlers of the world or the idolaters of the world, since then you would need to go out of the world. And I mean all the way out, because even if you set up a monastery and you had plumbing problems, you'd have to call a plumber and you'd probably find some pagan plumber to come. See what I'm saying? It's impossible. You're not going to do it. And they tried really hard, the monastic movement. Right, to get alone, to get away from everybody. He said, that's not what I meant. What I meant was, if you just want to finish the context here, he says, but now I'm writing you, I'm clarifying for you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. If he doesn't claim to be a Christian and live that way, and all the things we just read in, in 2 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, of course we can't. We can't commend that with our presence and our approval or our partnership. He says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Isn't it those inside the church that we're to judge? Of course we are. God judges those on the outside, but you purge, purge the evil person from among you. You're going to claim to be a Christian. You've got to live a Christian lifestyle, right? I'm not talking about the stumbling that you have and the guilt that you feel and the contrition you have and the shame you feel for failure. I'm talking about the people that go out and say, hey, I'm not going to change. I'm going to live the way I want to live and have the values I want to have. Can't, we can't embrace that. Paul says, now, that principle is not applied to the world. Why? Well, because we're supposed to be living our lives among the sinful people of the world. They need to see our distinctiveness. Just that that corrective, I just want to put it this way, no monasticism, no saying I'm separate to me means I got to leave this world. I can't have anything to do with this world. No, you, you have to. You can't leave out of the world. What we want is to get worldliness out of our lives. We need worldliness out of the church. That's the goal of the church. 
It is not for us to, to sever every connection with the world. The Bible wants us to have jobs in the marketplace. He wants us to have interactions with the neighbors that we have or to, you know, to, to be at places where there are going to be non-Christians that you're going to naturally go to. Of course, don't leave the world. That's been experimented with in the past, and that's certainly not what we ought to be doing. Let me throw one more passage in there I didn't put on the overhead, but it's 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. You don't need to turn there because we're out of time, but 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners exile and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation when he comes. Right? In other words, I'm an exile. I'm different, but I live among the Gentiles. What I need to be make sure that I do is that I live that distinctive lifestyle. I keep my conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against me, and they will... They call me a dirty rat or whatever. They, they'll have really nothing to say because my life was consistently filled with following Christ and doing what's right. And they'll see that, and on the day of Christ's coming, they'll have to admit it. All right. Now, I've covered this one in the past, so we won't spend much time on this, but let's jam through it. I put in the box in the bottom right corner a series I finished not long ago in Romans chapter 13. I got five sermons there in that series that can help you if you really have an interest in how the church is supposed to relate to government and politics. But let me just say this briefly. We are expatriates. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. The picture of every godly person in the Bible was someone that had, I'll put it this way, their ultimate loyalty elsewhere. Their ultimate loyalty elsewhere. I'm not saying, right, that they didn't tear up at the national anthem. I'm just saying when they went to church, they weren't waving flags around, right? Paul wasn't there waving the you know, Macedonian flag. You know, this was about the kingdom of heaven. This was about citizens of heaven, And as Hebrews 11 says, and I love it, it's so good about the godly people in this list. They were strangers and exiles on earth. They were seeking a homeland, which, by the way, is where I get the word expatriate, where we get the word expatriate. The homeland, it wasn't here, it was somewhere else. The expatriate, his home is somewhere else. If they would have been thinking of the land which they'd they'd gone out of, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Every Christian on earth should have the perspective that though I live here, if you live in the United States, as an American right? I mean, my ultimate loyalty is not to America. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an exile, a sojourner. It's not, I'm passing through not just because I'm going to die and I'm transient. I'm passing through and, and I'm a transient because my loyalty is somewhere else. My ultimate citizenship is in heaven. With that said, we're submissive expatriates. That's what the Romans 13 series was largely about, that we're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities. I recognize that as Romans 13 does because I acknowledge they have sanctioned authority. Their authority comes from God. They are called in this text the ministers of God, the diakonos, I believe it is, the the, the deacons of God. They are ministering on behalf of God in the government. You're thinking, wow, if they're ministers, they're not good ones. I get that. Even when Peter wrote about honoring the king, he wrote while Nero was enthroned in Rome, one of the worst, most immoral, right? Just as bad as it gets, not as bad as God. There were a few emperors that were worse, but Nero was up there at the top. And what was the point? They were willing to recognize that they had sanctioned authority and God's sovereignty didn't mean if God was involved, it was a perfect leader. And if God was not involved, it, you know, if, if it was a terrible leader, God must not be involved. That's not, they didn't have that immature view of sovereignty. In one of my sermons, I don't remember which one, I talk a lot about that, that we need to think differently about the sovereignty of God in putting authorities in place and we need to be submissive to them with limits, obviously. We're obedient with limits, but we are, we are submissive, which by the way, involves paying taxes. Had another update from somebody I sat right here with us listening to my preaching. 
not paying taxes. And I've met so many of those over the years. And they do it with this godly kind of fist in the air. Uh, there's no biblical authority for you not paying your taxes. You may not like where all your taxes go. I may have really frustrated you with that list of the social net, safety net. But the bottom line is we're called to do it. And, and just like they had to in Jesus' day when he showed them the picture of the coin, you know, and uh, we give to Caesar what's Caesar, Caesar's, and he's asking for his taxes, and we ought to acknowledge their sanctioned authority and pay them. Much more I could say, and I did. I got five hours of information for you there. If you really want to hear me tonight, you can hear them all tonight. You can be done by, you know, two in the morning. Now, letter C. We're supposed to be influential expatriates. And, and I, I guess I could review where I just was, salt and light. That we're making a difference. We care. And though it's completely external to the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, this idea of voting, I mean, there's the most obvious thing. It's, it's foreign to what we read in the Bible, but I'm sure if the Apostle Paul could comment on voting and we had an opportunity to vote, of course we're going to vote. Of course we're going to go and, and make our voice heard. And if you don't vote, then, I mean, you can't look at a principle of Scripture that cares about being salt and light and not vote. Uh, I mean, that's, a, that's at a minimum. But I go through in the series, by the way, I, I bring up issues like uh, every time there was an opportunity for a Christian in the Bible to address a political leader, they didn't hold back. I mean, the heroes of the Bible, like Paul or John the Baptist warning Herod, Herod Anipas about his sin uh, in Luke 3, Acts 24, um, so many examples. Justin Martyr, I love that quote. I always quote it when I talk on this topic. Second century, he writes to the emperor in the Roman Senate. He says, I give you this advance warning. You certainly will not escape the coming judgment of God if you persist, persist in your injustice. Not a bad letter to write to your, your senator. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what Christians have done historically. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm saying that generically. This is aired on all states across uh, the country. I don't know. Uh, Joseph, Daniel, Zacchaeus, Matthew, tax collectors. There's so many examples of people involved even in government. If that's your calling, then there's nothing wrong with being influential expatriate. The point is, though, we represent truth. We're always voting for what's true. We're always standing up for what's right. In terms of what God has commanded us, we've got to stand by that. We can't compromise on that. We're going to stand up for truth if we're on a city council. I don't care if you're on the Homeowners Association board. We've got to stand up for what is biblically right. And those principles, if we know the Bible, isn't just, you know, isn't just applicable to church meetings. It has to do with how we function in society. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly for us on an everyday basis, is we need to be praying expatriates. First Timothy chapter 2 says, we ought to ur-, he says, I urge, Paul says to Timothy, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and for all those in high positions that we may lead. Now, here's the purpose clause. Notice this, a peaceful and quiet life. What does that mean? They don't want to turn the world upside down with the gospel? Yeah, they do. I mean, that's what Paul was doing in the book of Acts. It says that they turned the world upside down. What are we talking about then? We're talking about as it relates to the government. I don't want any problems here with you. I don't want the, the government to be a problem. I don't want them intruding on our church services. I don't want them curtailing my expansion of the gospel live a quiet, godly life in a dignified way. This is good and it pleases God. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. I put it this way. What we're praying for, uh, among other things, but primarily it's for freedom to advance the cause of Christ. What's the cause of Christ? The Great Commission. I want to reach, teach, and train. As a Christian, you want to reach, teach, and train in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your relationship with people. That's what our lives are all about. And if that's what our lives are all about, when we pray for the government, we want to pray that they don't, inter- they don't mess that up. They don't interfere with us. A lot of other things, too, that get our goad and get us frustrated that we'd like to fix. Fine, vote on those, right? But the bottom line is we're praying primarily that our government goes well and our country goes well so that we can continue doing what God has called us to do. Let me close with this passage, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Let me just read it for you. 
as it relates to expatriates. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right? They were in the doghouse for 70 years. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and, and, and sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Of course, we're not talking welfare in terms of the government welfare. We're talking about the good of the government. If, if you pray for the good of the government, then the, the people of God can thrive, and we can do what God has called us to do. All right, that was a lot of information for one, one night.